Hey, this is Max from the Arkells, and you're listening to Underground Sports Philadelphia. going on everybody we are live with underground sports philadelphia episode number 197 welcome to underground studios kyle bed and matt castorina coming at you live on facebook as always show brought to you by main auto llc Ducharms pro foot security 21 wainwright bernhardt funeral home paul j gillespie incorporated bob novick automall mark ronchetti cpa llc and the Dental Wellness Center of Vineland. Potentially our last show of 2019, so that's pretty wild. But, uh, Matt, what's going on? Welcome back from the uh, the 10-day DL and uh, being part of the Sixers with your upper respiratory infection. Yeah, which has still lingered. Um, still not at 100%, but, you know, had to, <laughs> had to come on and, and get back in the, the swing of things. But, yeah, I felt like an honorary Sixer over this last week and a half. I, I understand now the perils of an upper respiratory infection. <laughs> I won't be making any more jokes. Uh, let's get your thoughts, though, on uh, the Christmas Day game. Me and Dylan broke it down on Thursday, um, but we were watching the game, obviously, and uh, the Sixers you know, committed a bullying on Christmas, uh, and that honestly was the most peak I've seen this team function pretty much start to finish outside of you know a, a typical Sixers fourth quarter. Yeah, it was um, a very, very impressive game when you're playing the best team in the league uh, and you're able to make them look like, I don't know, the Phoenix Suns. That's pretty good. It was, I think the the big takeaway from this, it was about as good of a game as I think you could have gotten from the Sixers and probably about as bad of a game as you're going to get out of the Bucks, mainly more Giannis. Um, but those things aren't, <clears throat> aren't, they, it's not like those things don't have a link there. Um, and I, I think Giannis having an off night is certainly connected to Embiid's defense on him. Um, and I, I think the Sixers' high performances do are due to a lot, just a, a good matchup against the Bucks. And um, I don't think we'll see that kind of difference between the two teams should they meet, uh, you'd guess, in the conference finals you know, in May. But uh, it is a positive sign and, you know, I've always said uh, for, for this season that I, I'm more I'm more happy when this team and, and more interested in this team when they're beating teams like the Bucks, the Heat, um, the Celtics, the Raptors. Like I, I'm more excited and happy about that than I am when they lose teams like the Magic, uh, like they lost last night. You know, like the, to me, the it's, yeah, it's much more important to beat these high end teams than you know what. Like I, I honestly don't care if we're you know, dropping a game or two here against a, a team in December or whatever, like you move on from that. But the the bigger takeaways, and I think the much more important thing for this team going forward is showing that they're capable of beating the top teams in the East, which by the way, they have a tremendous record against, which is not something you should be able to say about this team for whatever issues 
you can say they're having the season, whatever trades you want to pull up. This team has beaten the best teams in the East, like at least once. Everyone around them, they've beaten at least once. So that's that's impressive. And, and no other team can say that either, by the way, that the Bucks have struggled against a lot of these, you know, um, like the, the, the best teams in the East and the Heat as well have been, uh, you know, slapped down on. And, you know, everyone else kind of has this inconsistency where the, the Sixers have regularly uh and honestly demolished a lot of these teams like a few of these games have not even been close uh the heat game was over at halftime the bucks i think with most other teams with a 20 plus point lead at halftime you probably say that's over but just because they're the, the bucks and they can go on a run you kind of convince yourself they can stay in it and they did make a late run but they dominate the raptors at home dominate bounce back after the Embiid zero game you know like this you know, and you look at the losses this team has suffered to these top teams, and they haven't been bad losses. You know, they go on the road and dominate the Celtics. Uh, opening night, they dominate. Like, this, that to me is much more impressive and much more important than any kind of negativity about dropping games to, to some lesser teams. And the Magic have had our number, by the way, over the past two years. Like, they've perennially been a team that we've struggled against. So, I don't know. You know, I, I think that's the big takeaway is just that this is another step in the road to what matters the most which is the playoffs and um you know I, I think this team again just continues to be what they were what they were marked as in the summer which is a team that's going to give the best teams a lot of headaches and a lot of issues they're big they're going to out rebound you and you know if for everything you want to say about this team offensively they're an efficient offense and you know you look at the the numbers and it doesn't feel like it when you watch this team sometimes but they're like a top five in most categories in where you want to be they're they're a top five three-point shooting team they take efficient shots you know they don't have a high volume but it's like i don't you you have six players that are shooting above you 35 36 percent like that's good (laughs) there's there's no if ands or buts about it either like I, i think the only thing you'd say that's missing from this offense is you know maybe like another initiator someone who can get to the free throw line but you know you don't know what's going to happen at the waiver wire and also yeah every team needs at least one more piece I don't think there's a single team in the NBA right now that couldn't use an additional player x you know that does whatever skill like there's no such thing as a perfect team I think the closest you've gotten was like the Warriors for like two years and like probably a year and a half of those heat teams like you just don't get perfect teams you, you just simply don't and even those teams had their weaknesses and their faults um the, like deeper down the roster so yeah for me this is a well-built team that shows that they can beat the best teams in the east um regularly it's not just flukes either and are, are going to be super competitive in the playoffs which is exactly what we wanted so i for me it's all positive uh last night obviously was one of those games where you're not as concerned, but it was disappointing coming off the high that was the Christmas Day game. The Sixers fall to the Magic, 98-97. Somehow got back into this one after they were down 11. Um, the biggest takeaway I got was when I woke up this morning, a uh, video from Brett Brown post game from Serena Winners, and this uh, is what Brett said. I give them credit. Uh, we I don't believe that we responded to it well at all. Um, I think that our defense was good enough to win. I think that we got shoved around. What did you make of the fight, though, that the team showed at the end there? To, to almost I don't even care about it. I, I really don't even care about it. You know, I don't believe that we should have been in that position. And I, I think it's hollow praise to, to go there. I'm not going there. It's, uh, it, it's a, a, a physicality um, issue that we lost. 
and it's in fact it'll probably be uh, end up serving us well like it's it was a a playoff type of movement as far as the physical side of it and I thought that we uh, responded uh, with a D minus when you say could end up when you talk about that is it concerning that you know you play to the level of opponents right yeah, it is I mean just what's the cause of that you tell me I don't know Keith like you, you know that's something that we have to figure out it's part of our journey and uh, they're good people the high character people and uh, we, we will together uh, dig in and, and, and figure it out when you say that this could end up serving you guys well could you just explain what you mean by that just the execution the ability to fight through screens even the last play you know where we almost were in a position to steal a game like the screening angle was poor the acceptance of a cut was poor with stuff that we drill at every single day and I thought that we handled it poorly we did not execute I give Orlando credit but uh, you know in some ways you know that that's stuff that that we have to be better uh, starting this middle third the way, the way you're talking about physicality that's more of a mental thing and, and fighting through. in my opinion it is it's a statement thing it's a physical thing and I thought that we responded poorly how else can I say this you know, I, 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 I'm saying it as clearly as I can, and that's how I see it. Fired up, Brett Brown. Tough love. Um, he's right, though, you know, and I, as much as I say that I'm not, you know, so focused on the magic, this has been an issue with the Sixers team a lot, has been, uh, you know, you get these great performances against the good teams and, you know, this uh, this kind of hangover with with the next game and um yeah it's even been inconsistent this year where you've had some of those games where the Sixers come out and play it well and and shut teams down and then you have games like last night but the Magic again have been a team that have given us issues even you look at the games we beat them in last year they were all close um some of those games were relying on Jimmy Butler down the stretch uh, I think one of the the first games was his uh like one of his date when we just traded for him yeah. and he was kind of in limbo and we lost that game like you know it's it's it is it is a weakness with this team there's no bones about it and the one issue is that yes you can say it's a positive thing that that team plays to the level of their opponent meaning in the playoffs it means they'll play well obviously though i think what's what has to be on everyone's mind is seeding in this conference and the east is not dwindling at all uh you look at the the teams around us and they're all still on the same pace and you know we're you don't really want to be a five seed in the East right now. Like you, you want to have a two seed. I, you're not going to catch the Bucks realistically, but um, I do think, especially when you look at just how the Sixers have played versus on the road and at home this year, any home court advantage you can get is going to be crucial. Because right now, you know, if you're sitting at a five seed, you're not getting a home series at all, most likely. Um, I, I don't think there's going to be any big upsets that you'd expect. So, yeah, I, I think it's important that this team does start to have better performances like this and I like that Brett is not um not excusing because this isn't a young team anymore where like you say oh we're, we're growing and all this and so learning this this frankly is a team that should be putting better performances up um and should have this more consistency and this kind of I don't know not to use a cliche but like that just that that kill mode you know like we're just like okay like we are not we're not losing to the magic for the second time this year that's just not happening um and they, they've kind of they haven't really always shown that, which is not great. But 
Um, I, I still think this team's on, on a path that's good. But, you know, you have a back-to-back tonight against the Heat as well, which is not an easy team to have to go back-to-back against. Um, and another team that sort of uh, you've been a little inconsistent with this year again, and you, you hope that you can get the job done. But, you know, the, the Sixers just you need more consistency out of them. And I, I think if you start to get that, this team is – you know, top three, top four in the league. Right now, they're kind of, I think the reason that, you know, I'll accept that they're kind of hovering around just in that top 10 area is just because you do see these great performances against the the top teams. You think, wow, that's great. But they frequently do kind of put up these stinkers against bad teams, which I I think uh, will mar some people's confidence on them, which is not unreasonable. But, you know, for me, I, I think it's still more important that you put on good showings against teams like the Bucks, and hey if you go out and beat the Heat tonight I think you kind of move forward with that but you know it, it it is kind of just what the Sixers team is at the same time you know this has kind of always been an issue with this team is you know in in Brett's entire career even when this team was a process team you know they they certainly weren't an easy win most nights against like the good teams like they they were always competitive they always hung around but then you know would get slapped by other bad teams like They've always been a team, I think, that is is a little moody night to night. And whether that's Brett's doing, I don't know. Whether that's just the makeup of the players, I don't know. I think it's a very hard question to nail down. Are you at all concerned with Al Horford? Um, <laughs> like, yes and no. Um, yes in the fact that we're paying him a lot of money over a lot of years, which has always been a concern, um, and that he's he's slumping. No, in that we've had players slump this year and uh, it's sort of like been passing the baton almost of our right, year turn to have an awful two weeks um, and it feels like this is just Horford's time I feel like Horford has always been a signing that was sold to us as a uh, a locker room kind of signing like he's not going to be you know we know what Al Horford's going to be he's going to be you know 14 and 8 you know most nights and you know a pretty overall positive effect on the team but that he's going to be someone that can give us a little more versatility um, can help Joel Embiid kind of grow on on and off the court and I'm not I'm not pushing any panic buttons on him but it's definitely like not ideal and I I, you know I wasn't high on signing Horford in the beginning I think you kind of sell yourself in the sky knowing that okay we have a two-year window if you get it done then whatever and I think he will age okay in this league but um yeah there there has to be some mild concern at least because it's not like he's a young guy it's like all right you know he's just kind of figuring it out you know anytime someone's you know at 32 33 start to think and, and they start slumping like oh are we at the edge of the cliff now you know um I don't know that we're there with Horford, but that's, I think that's just always in the back of your mind when you pay a guy his age the type of money that we're doing and for how long we're doing it. You, I think there's always a little bit of worry. And, um, you know, there's nothing, nothing you could do to really change that either. And then last night, I think the reason they full-blown lost is because the bench didn't show up again. You know, Furkan Korkmaz, seven points in 22 minutes. James Ennis, two points in 18 minutes. Mike Scott went over in 15 minutes. And uh, everybody's favorite bench player now, Trey Burke, five points in nine minutes was pretty much your only efficiency off the bench uh, in terms of how many minutes he was on the court. But, you know, you add a little bit more bench points, two more, and the Sixers win this game. Sure, it's an ugly win, but uh, they ultimately lose to the Magic again. It seems like they just can never beat them. No Thibault either, by the way. Yeah. In the last few games as well. I think that's kind of been lost in the mud here is that, um, you know, one of your 
biggest contributors off the bench has been out. So, But they get the heat tonight. Um, down in Miami this time, the first two matchups have been at the Wells Fargo Center. I don't know how I feel about this game. It's a tough place to go, Miami. Um, you know, they're very similar to us in that at home, very difficult team to beat. But, you know, you, you know what the recipe is to beat this Heat team. You, you've seen it, um, you know, so far this year. Jimmy Butler's great at getting the line. We know that he's one of the best players in the league right now at, at his free throw rate. Um, so you have to be, I think, very conservative with how you play him. You don't want to give him too many opportunities to, to go there and get easy buckets. Um yeah, I mean, it, this is it's a team we've had some competitive games against already this year. One was obviously a blowout. The other one definitely much more close. But it's always going to be tough going on the road, especially a back-to-back on the road. Thankfully, it's you know right in South Florida as well, so you know not not too difficult travel-wise. But um, yeah, I think for me, you know, I'm expecting a win just because I think the the team needs to. to kind of continue rolling on they've been on on this funk of you know win three four straight lose two straight you know win three straight lose three straight like you've kind of been on this weird weird mix of of inconsistency uh you want to see that kind of get ironed out as you you move into 2020 and you know january and february is where it really starts to pick up and get a little heavier like this is where you're going to have games a lot more frequently and um you know and again you know you have to keep an eye on the seating in the conference just that's just the fact of it um and and if you can go and now go two one up in the season season series against a good team like miami then that's that's positive for the sixers yeah because you look at the way that 2019 ends for them obviously it's the heat and then they play new year's eve uh in indiana to take on the pacers and then january starts and you're at houston you're home against an oklahoma city thunder team that is pretty much the western conference orlando magic you can just never beat them um, so you have to get up for that one. And then you host Boston, and then you go to Dallas, this time more than likely with Luka Doncic, and then you go back to Indiana, and then you host Brooklyn, you host the Bulls, you go to the Knicks, you go to Brooklyn, you go to Toronto again, and then you get that January 25th matchup primetime against LeBron, Anthony Davis, and the Lakers. Yeah, and it, you know it's a pretty winnable month, January. Just say, I think on the whole, yeah, there's obviously some tough games in there, but uh, for the most part, you're going to be playing some kind of bottom of of the East teams, which is positive for the Sixers. We hope. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some good tests thrown in there as well. You're obviously going to have a team like the Raptors. You got the Lakers in the well in there as well. You got the Nuggets, I think, late in the month. Um, yeah, Boston again. Boston again, which is is good. Dallas. Uh, like the, these are all uh, good teams to to kind of test yourself against. And you know, the Sixers have risen to those challenges quite frequently this year. But yeah, it, I the consistency thing, I think, is the biggest question mark with this team right now. And um, you know, I, I know that I've said I'm, I'm very positive about this team and where they go, but, you know, again, if this team is a, a fifth or even a fourth seed in the East, that's just not a an ideal situation to place yourself in. I would still obviously, you know, back them all the way and be positive about it, but um, I don't particularly want to be playing the Milwaukee Bucks in the second round of the playoffs. I don't think anyone in their right mind really does. Um, and... You know that we know that the East is going to be a bloodbath this year, especially second round on. You want to give yourself, you know, kind of the easiest opponent imaginable in that first round, and that means getting a second seed. You know, man, remember when they said when LeBron left the East, it was going to get easier? <laughs> yeah, what a joke. Uh, but yeah, you want to 
get that home court advantage because you look at the home road splits for this team. They're 16-2 and two at home. And then they are a below 500 NFL team on the road. They're seven and nine. You know, I'd much rather have four games at max at the Wells Fargo Center than having to go to any of these places on the road for four games potentially. Yeah, I mean, you look at the the rest of the East as well, and it, there's been definitely an establishment of good home court advantages. Um, pretty much every team is is well above uh, the mark uh, for what you'd expect typically. So. Yeah, that's that's a big thing. But, you know, it, it also – you could see some teams fall off. I, I'm still kind of waiting on Miami to fall off a little bit. They they still feel like pretenders to me. And the Raptors will continue to be a good regular season team. But I think in the playoffs, that, that's someone you can beat. But, yeah, I, I – you know, as much as you complain about the Sixers and everything, um, you look at the position that they're in, and it's still a pretty good one. Um but you hope that some of these games don't come back to haunt them, you know, in, in April when you're, you're looking at kind of uh, the seeding and who's going to be playing who and what your path is. You, you hope that games against the Magic and the Wizards aren't ones that you kind of uh, kind of slap yourself for. And that's why I want them to take advantage of these Pacers games now, too, because Woj reported over the weekend or, you know, earlier this week that uh, Victor Oladipo is expected back late January, early February, which is essentially like the Pacers getting a trade deadline acquisition of their best player. So you add him into the mix, who knows what that's going to do for their offense. And we know how the Sixers struggle against scorers. Take advantage of the Pacers while they're still shorthanded. Yeah, and I mean, that's someone that's been out for pretty much a year at this point. Um, with a football injury. Yeah, so it's going to be very – I'm very curious to see what the Pacers look like uh, with with Victor back in. But, you know, I, I still think the Pacers are just a step below everyone else, and we've seen that in the playoffs the last few years where they just don't have that, you know, high-end talent uh, to, to really put it past teams. And I, I don't see that with the, you know, the current roster they have being uh, any different this season. But, yeah, you're right in that. You, you do want to take care of uh, this team before they have their, their best player back. Sixers will get it back on track, and right now, somehow, someway, the Philadelphia Eagles are one win away from clinching the NFC East. They took down the Cowboys, they made everybody look stupid that doubted them, and uh, now they got to go just up to the Meadowlands, take on the Giants, and, you know, that means they got to do it with uh, some guys that are going to be missing, because yesterday... Uh, Nelson Aguilar obviously ruled out with a knee injury, but they will not have Zach Ertz on Sunday, which is a huge loss in my opinion. Uh, arguably their best offensive target because everybody else has been injured, and he's like Carson Wentz's favorite target as well. So it's going to be a lot of Dallas Goddard. You're going to have Miles Sanders, obviously. You are getting Jordan Howard back. He practiced in full, was cleared for contact, and... Uh, Lane Johnson is questionable, so we'll see if Lane gets up for this one. Would not be shocked if they kept him out just to make sure he's 100% for the playoffs, but Eagles are one win away. It is um, an unbelievable position to find yourself in. Uh, if the uh, the Cowboys lose, though, it doesn't matter the result, right? Right. So, uh, shout out the Redskins. Maybe, maybe do us a favor. Do us a little solid there. Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know, we've we've said the past few weeks that it's all in the Eagles' hands. It's just whether or not you have the confidence in them, and um, I think you have to say, you know, if if you had said at the beginning of the year your season was going to come down to just having to beat the Giants, you would have taken that. You would have taken that bet. So 
yeah, it's it's a good situation to find yourself in that at least you have uh, the power uh, firmly in your control. You don't have to hope that someone loses and X, Y, Z happens. Um, obviously, missing Zach Ertz is not an ideal situation to find yourself in. You're right, but Goddard step up the the past few weeks. Even Thega Whiteside has been uh, a little more a little more active. So can't believe saying this. Greg Ward uh, has been what a beast has been unbelievable off the practice squad. Um, Miles Sanders has looked absolutely outstanding the past really month and a half. Austin um, Scott has come out of nowhere. So you, you've kind of you kind of talk yourself into these guys and say, yeah, you know, we could get it done. And, and frankly, it's the Giants, um, not a very good football team, and you, you kind of expect to to beat them. But they've been frisky the last few weeks. They they certainly have not been a team that's uh, lying down and and you know, ready to just uh, tank and all that. Of course, they, they will have their eye on some other games and, you know, where their draft position is going to be. But this is still a team, like, listen, it's a divisional game. Wonky stuff happens when you when you get uh, in the NFC. So uh, kind of, I think, expect the unexpected. But you have the chance to snuff out uh, Dallas's torch, which I think everyone would have immense pleasure in doing. And the best part about it is, you know, Dak Prescott comes out yesterday or a couple days ago, and says, hey, this could be potentially my last game in Dallas because he's obviously a free agent. Uh, they were asking him about Jason Garrett's you know, status as the head coach and everything. He said, hey, this could be my last game too, so we're just going to go out there and give it what we got. That, to me, just sends a message that like that Cowboys team has packed it in. They're done. Like They just know that this is the end, and that they have no shot. Like they have mailed this season in, and it's done for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would say too. Just think if uh, the roles were reversed, and say it's Carson uh, in a, a must-win game. By the way, they have to win this game and hope that the Eagles drop it. You know, saying like before that, saying, "Oh, well, this, this is this might be my last game in Philly." You know, like what the reaction would be, what people's opinions would be, and yeah, that's um, not a, a great. You know, that's your quarterback, one of the leaders on your team. In that, that should not be a a even answer this week like that shouldn't be on your mind at all this week it should be all about winning the game and uh and and moving on and then you know talk to you in january uh, about that kind of thing like it who whoever his like press officer is whoever his like social media helper is like needs to drill him a little better because you, you should not be offering up that kind of uh that kind of answer in, in a week like this absolutely not no, it, it just it literally just says, "Hey, we're laying down, and you know we just want to move on. We're ready for Jason Garrett to get fired, and we'll see you guys, you know, at training camp and everything." Um, and this is like a highly scrutinized team, highly scrutinized market. Like, there's already like so much like floating around this Dallas team. I don't know why you would, you know, you already have like a million moons in orbit. I don't know why you would. Add uh, another one, a much larger one. Now, this like question of of you know Dak leaving or, or staying over over the summer, like that's just that's such a dumb decision. I don't know. It's such a Dallas thing to do. Who knew Dak Prescott had bad uh, judgment? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd say the only thing that concerns me with this Eagles Giants matchup is one, they've never faced Daniel Jones. The first time the Eagles played the Giants this year was uh, the return of Eli Manning because, for whatever reason, the Eagles didn't play the Giants until December. Uh, And Saquon Barkley looks healthier than ever. Uh, Plus, the last time these two teams played, a certain wide receiver known as Darius Slayton absolutely torched them, and he will be on the field as well, and Daniel Jones loves him. The positives, though, 
are that the Giants will be without their right tackle. They have like zero tight end depth to add extra protection on that line. And their grossly paid left tackle, who is just not good in Nate Solder, uh, will be playing. So the Eagles pass rush has to, you know, show up in this game uh, and really just dominate from start to finish and make Daniel Jones see those same ghosts that Sam Darnold saw uh, on national TV and just dominate a kid that has no idea what he has coming to him in terms of playing against this Eagles defense. Yeah, and, you know, I agree, but Daniel Jones has had, he's had some big games this year, and he's done it against some tough defenses even. You know, like I know the Bucks we don't typically think of as having a stingy defense just because every second or third game with them is 49 to 42, but that's not an easy defense to torch, and he did that in his, his first start in the league. Um, I don't know. Like, this is not a – it's not a – the Giants are, are again, like I said, they're they're not a team that's certainly lying down at all and, and sort of giving up the ghost here. And um, they they've been really competitive the last few weeks. And you know, you had that like that stinker against the Dolphins, which is like Jesus, who wanted to watch that? Um, you know, they've 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 taken care of the bad teams around them. And you know, teams like the Redskins, the Dolphins, who the Eagles have struggled against, even lost to. Um, that's not a overwhelmingly positive sign for the Eagles. And I think the the much bigger question mark for them has been the defense on really every single angle. We've talked about the pass rush being good this year. We've also talked about them being really poor and not getting enough pressure at times. Um, we've seen just about every receiver have big days and big plays against the Eagles. So, you know, they, when you have a connection like, you know, that uh, Darius and Jones have, like that's not an ideal situation for for the Eagles. So, yeah, it's, it's a tough matchup. And, again, I, I always subscribe to divisional games. No matter what time of year it is, no matter what the what the teams are like, how good they're playing, it's always wonky, and you can always expect something unexpected to happen. Um, so I think you have to take a lot of care with the Giants. And you look at this Giants team. They beat a Dolphins team that the Eagles could not beat and put up 36 points on them. And they beat the Washington Redskins in overtime last week and put up 41 points. Plus, the last time these two teams played, and that was when Eli Manning was the quarterback, it took overtime for the Eagles to win. Uh, so we had to deal with overtime of, you know, just a bad Giants football team that at that point only had two wins. This Eagles team just has to get off to a hot start. Carson just has to come out, you know, guns blazing and, you know, just say, hey, we're winning this division and we're going to the playoffs. And then, honestly, if they end up winning this game and going to the playoffs... I am fully convinced just the way this season has gone, they are going to win that home playoff game. And then if you get to the divisional round, anything can happen. You know, Deshaun Jackson can come back. He's eligible to come off of injured reserve. You're potentially going out to California to play the 49ers. Deshaun Jackson is from California, so he's got a little homecoming game there. I'm not saying, you know, don't let the Eagles get hot, but... The NFL has apparently allowed the Eagles to get hot one last time with this kind of group of guys that uh, is majority Super Bowl guys. And we all know what happened when teams doubted the Eagles. Uh, I'm just saying, if they get in the playoffs, be fully locked and loaded for a playoff run. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point. Like, when you have your destiny in your hands as well, it's uh, that's a much more powerful position to be in. Um you know, I, I just think uh, 
there is like an aspect of it too like where yeah you know what like this team can get hot and they have they have the the experience and, and the veterans on this team to do it um it's just what kind of confidence level you have in them um that's been the case with the eagles all years just how how much of, with your chest do you want to say things like that and uh I, I think it's always a mixed reaction depending on the week so yeah you know but again if you had said at the beginning of your, your season was going to come down to, to having to beat the Giants. I think most people would have taken that. Um, obviously, the Eagles could have made it easier on themselves with some uh, different performances this year. But, yeah, they, they, you talk about the injuries and, and things like that. It's been a, a pretty rough season. So you get to the playoffs, anything can happen. I know it's very cliche, but it's it's also the truth. Uh, cliches are cliches for a reason. If you get to the playoffs, anything can happen. Um, I, I don't have as much faith as maybe you do in this Eagles team making a playoff run. But if you get there, who knows? And you take it week to week. I just see the confidence in this team has just blossomed over the past three weeks. You know, after this Cowboys win, uh, they give you the locker room access on the TV and you see them doing the electric slide for the first time since that Bears game in 2017. And I think this team just believes in themselves. And I think that is the biggest key. Early on throughout this season, there was a lot of, you know, speculated division in this locker room. Uh, you know, a lot of guys just not trusting each other. And right now, it's, it's I love the moniker that they're calling it Carson and the kids, even though Carson's only 26. A lot of young guys on this team that have never had this experience before, but Carson's leading them. They're putting out those mic'd up videos of Carson Wentz, you know, the past couple weeks. And he's boosting these guys' morale and giving them confidence. And I think confidence is key in any sport. And seeing it come from a guy in Carson Wentz where so many people doubted that he even had the confidence in himself to bounce back after, you know, the injury. Nick Foles winning a Super Bowl after he carried the team to get there. I think it's a, a huge bonus for this team that they are just oozing with confidence right now at the right time. You know, they didn't peak early in the season like the Cowboys, you know, who kept the divisional seat warm for us until now. And I think that's the biggest thing that you know motivates me is like seeing the confidence that this team has seeing Doug Peterson look like 2017 Doug Peterson and playoffs of last year Doug Peterson he has confidence in himself and uh I think that's huge so we'll see what happens with the Eagles on Sunday at 425 as they got flexed with all the other uh important playoff scenario games but with this being potentially the last time we are live with you in 2019 end of this decade figure we go through the decade, pick out some favorite points. Uh, obviously, we love drafts on uh, this show, and let's let's talk about some of our favorite draft picks of the decade. We'll start with the Sixers because there were plenty of them. Um, this decade got started in the first round with us getting the number two overall pick, and they ended up taking Evan Turner with the number two overall pick in 2010. Some other notable draft picks of the decade. Nikola Vucevic, who they just saw last night with the Orlando Magic. Uh, everybody's favorite, Mo Harkless. Uh, 2013 obviously brought us Michael Carter-Williams, who everybody thought was going to be the next face of the franchise. 2014 comes along. They're the number three pick. And Joel Embiid finally becomes a sixer. Along with uh, drafting Alfred Payton, who then became... One Dario Saric. Jeremy Grant was also drafted that year. Um, you go to 2015. The Jaleel Okafor experience began. 
Uh, Rashawn Holmes was a second-round pick in the 2015 draft as well. And then 2016, they finally win the draft lottery. Ben Simmons comes to Philadelphia. So does uh, one Timote Luwawu Karabo. And uh, Furkan Korkmaz also in that draft. And then uh, 2017, the pick swapped. Markel Fultz, Jonah Bolden, and uh, we all know how that's worked out for this Sixers team. And then 2018, we uh, had Mikael Bridges that eventually became Zaire Smith, Landry Shamit, who eventually became Tobias Harris, Mike Scott, and uh, Boban. We also drafted Giannis's brother, who never stayed with the team. And then, obviously, this past draft, uh, Matisse Thibel and all the guys that I literally wanted on this team that just got traded. And, of course, Mariel Shayok. Of all these drafts, obviously, we love Joel Embiid the most, and he is the face of this franchise, and we love Ben Simmons because those have kind of just been the pillars of you know the, the process coming to fruition. But of all these guys that got drafted from 2010 to 2019, man, Outside of, you know, the two obvious ones. Who, who do you think was your favorite to watch in a Sixers uniform? Um, man. I love Devin Turner. I uh, I always felt like... I, I think Evan Turner is a great player. He's obviously not quite number two worthy. But um, I feel like he... He's actually a player that I think would be great on this team now. Just obviously not really ever going to work out. Um, I always thought he he was almost like how Iguodala was when he was here, where he got, I think, just too much expected of him for his talent level, and obviously part of that was him getting picked at number two. And um, I've always been a pretty, I've always had a soft side for Evan Turner, though. He, he's someone that I think was um, maybe a, maybe a little too early for this team, honestly, uh, in terms of what he could do. And yeah, he's he's he would be a great you know like fourth or fifth option, but at the time he was like our number two guy. Um, those you know. Everyone talks about like how like not fun those like early 2010 Sixers teams were. They were kind of fun. I don't know. You had you had Lou Williams on those teams. Like fast team Drew Holiday. Like his kind of like uh, his rise to stardom. Like they obviously were never going to be a championship winning team, but they were fun to watch. Beat the Bulls. Yeah, they beat the. They even had. um, I remember. I believe it was Lou Williams who hit a buzzer beater to beat Mm -hmm. the Heat uh, to not get swept. Yeah. (laughs) you know, like that. Yeah, obviously that that team had a, a definite definite ceiling on it, but there is some revision about that team like being just absolutely terrible to watch. And I, I don't think that's the case. They were a lot of fun. Um, it did, just did not have the the high end talent uh, to compete, especially with how the East was kind of going at that point. You had teams like Miami, uh, Chicago, Indiana was starting to really build themselves up around that time. So yeah, it's um, it's always kind of a shame when you think back on those years and think like. Oh, man, could have been a lot better, but they, they were fun, and I, I always have a lot of love for Evan Turner. Also forgot about everybody's favorite Temple son, Lavoy Allen, who yeah. was drafted uh, in 2011, but I think uh, I have to go with Dario. You know, just the the character that he was, the, the allure of Dario's never coming over. Uh, you know, they drafted Alfred Payton and traded him to get Dario. And that was, like, the big hinky move. That's yeah. like, you know, if you made a list of, like, the top five things that he's did, he, he did in his tenure here, that's, like, I don't think that's necessarily number one, but that's that's in that top five because that put the Sixers back, kind of refixed a lot of the damage that had been done under the previous regime and was sort of his, like, 
step forward of like, here's how we're going to be doing this. We're going to fleece teams, <laughs> you know? And that was, that was impressive. And, you know, Dario eventually comes over and he just becomes this fan favorite. Um, you know, he's just one of the most likable players, I think, that has ever come through this organization. And uh, even though he's gone now, people still love him. He loves the city. Um, I think, you know, when we look back at this era of Sixers basketball, too, once it's, you know, said and done, Dario will be one of the most remembered players of this era of Sixers basketball that, you know, obviously includes the Hinky era, uh, the Colangelo era, and now uh, Elton Brand. Uh, Dario is somebody from this decade alone that will stand out to me outside of Joel and Ben uh, for a long, long time. And then, uh, you know, you look at just the the way that this team has evolved, too. There were three different eras pretty much in this decade, too. We had the Drew Holiday, Evan Turner era that then evolves into, okay, we're hitting the reset button and blowing this whole thing up, and then Hinky starts, and then... Hinky gets fired or, you know, forced to to step down. We get Colangelo. We get Burner Gate. And then a process sixer becomes the GM of the team. And now they are, you know, a, a team that is fighting for a championship. All in a matter of 10 years. Yeah, it's um, it, it has been a wild decade. I think you've seen, if this team had a little more playoff success, you would have seen the entire spectrum, I think, of, of what a team can be. You know, you had the kind of middling, you know, at best a sixth seed, mostly a seventh, eighth seed team. You had just absolute basement, basement dweller, and now you have a championship contender. It's all kind of the three phases you can really, really be uh, when you're a, a professional basketball team. So, yeah, it's been a, it has been a really interesting and unique decade. I'm looking forward to what the next decade brings, hopefully more rings, but... Yeah, it has been uh, quite a ride for the Sixers this this decade, absolutely. Let's kick it to the gridiron and the Eagles. Uh, 2010, our first round pick is still on the team. He was the Super Bowl hero. Uh, Brandon Graham was our number one pick in 2010 and highly criticized uh, early on in his career. Not a lot of people thought he would make it, especially, you know, with the whole thing where Earl Thomas was still on the board, the Eagles needed a safety to replace Brian Dawkins, and then they go draft the defensive end. And, you know, a lot of people did not want Brandon Graham back. Um, but then, obviously, he, you know, continues to stick with it, goes through the Chip Kelly era, switches positions pretty much because of the, the defensive scheme switch. And then Doug Peterson comes in, and Brandon Graham revitalizes his career and becomes an all-time great Eagle and for a guy to stick with one team, especially in the NFL, as long as Brandon Graham has, it's it's very impressive. Uh, some other notable picks. Nate Allen, who, if I'm not mistaken, was the draft pick that they acquired for Donovan McNabb. Uh, don't believe he's in the league anymore. Uh, some other notable picks. Uh, Clay Harbor, who is uh, more well-known for being on the bachelorette uh obviously riley cooper was in that draft and we all know what happened with riley cooper and uh kurt coleman who once he left the eagles became a pretty solid player um we moved to 2011 and that is arguably the worst draft in eagles history you had uh danny watkins the fireman who uh you know comes in and was just absolutely abysmal was only here for two years you had the worst Matthews brother in the lineage of that family, uh, Alex Henry, the the kicker that they took in the fourth round who did not last at all. 
Dion Lewis, who did not do anything with us, and then he goes and wins some Super Bowls with the Patriots, and he's still playing with the Titans. Uh, the only pick that mattered in that draft was pick number 191 in the sixth round. That's Jason Kelsey, who is still with the team, gave the most, you know, one 1A speech in Philadelphia championship history, and uh, I think will always be beloved in this town, uh, no matter what goes down, you know, once he retires, Jason Kelsey will be beloved forever. And then we go to 2012, and this was one of the best drafts in my lifetime, in our lifetime, and of this decade. You have Fletcher Cox, Michael Kendricks, who contributed to a Super Bowl team, uh, Vinnie Curry, who is back with the team, was on the Super Bowl team. You drafted your Super Bowl MVP, Nick Foles, in the third round. Brandon Boykin, who helped you uh, clinch a couple divisions there. Dennis Kelly, who uh, will be always known as the guy that they traded for Doriel Green Beckham. And then uh, Bryce Brown in the seventh round, who was a quality kind of Corey Clement running back for this team for a couple years. But, you know, to have three of those four guys, actually four of those guys, on the Super Bowl team to last from 2012 to get to 2017, I think was a a huge success in uh, Andy Reid's final draft. And then we get to the Chip Kelly era. And we get Lane Johnson, Zach Ertz, Benny Logan, who was a quality player for this team uh, for quite a while. Matt Barkley, who is somehow still in the league. Uh, Jordan Poyer, who is playing for the Buffalo Bills now and is also going to the playoffs. But to have your, your cornerstone right tackle and the best tight end in team history and one of the best tight ends in NFL history uh, from that draft is a huge success. 2014... 2014, man. Marcus Smith, the most reached-for player uh, ever, and then in the most historic wide receiver class we've seen probably up until what we get in 2020, uh, we come away with Jordan Matthews and Josh Huff. Not great. Uh, And then I would say the best pick outside of Jordan Matthews just because of how long he lasted and what he did for the team was Bo Allen because he was a rotational defensive tackle for you in the Super Bowl, and... uh, he, he proved his worth, and then he got a huge contract from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, 2015, you got Nelson Aguilar, Eric Rowe, and Jordan Hicks, the only guys that are still playing in the league as far as I know, and uh, all of them will soon be off the team because Jordan Hicks is in uh, Arizona. Eric Rowe just signed a contract extension in Miami and has played for three teams, and Nelson Aguilar will not be back with this team next we year. We pray. Then we move to 2016, and... Howie Roseman pulls a Sam Hinkie move to uh, move up and traded assets and maneuvered his way to get his franchise quarterback. And Carson Wentz comes into the fold in 2016. You also have currently your starting left guard in Isaac Sayamalo, who you got in the third round. You got Big V, who started at left tackle in the Super Bowl for you and had a hell of a game against the Cowboys uh, this past week. And you also got Jalen Mills in that draft, who arguably one of the best seventh-round picks this team has probably ever had. 2016 was a highly successful draft. Then you go to 2017 when the draft was in Philadelphia. You had Derek Barnett, Sidney Jones, who Sidney's looked good the past couple weeks, uh, Rasul Douglas, Matt Collins, the historic running back draft that you come away with, Denell Pumphrey, uh, Shelton Gibson, who is not with the team anymore, and... Nathan Gary, who is just going to be, I think, forever enshrined as the guy who flipped off the, the middle, Washington. Middle finger guy. Um, 
but you know you got Derek Bar- Derek Barnett was a huge contributor in the Super Bowl. Um, you know, helped on one of the most historic plays, and you know he he led with Brandon Graham and Fletcher Cox on that defensive line to uh, win the Super Bowl. And then the post Super Bowl drafts 2018, you get Dallas Goddard, where he drafted Dallas in Dallas and had to move in front of Dallas to get him. You drafted Avante Maddox, who looks like an absolute steal. Josh Sweat is coming into his own. Matt Pryor and Jordan Mailata. And then 2019, Andre Dillard, Miles Sanders, and J.J. Ortega-Whiteside, really the only ones that matter. Sharif Miller has not really played. And uh, obviously, Clayton Thorson is not on the team. So, a lot to kind of deconstruct here from these Eagles drafts. But, you know, you look at what they've been able to get in this deck and how many guys are actually still on this team, too. That's highly successful. And sure, we've bashed, you know, the drafting the past couple years, but you look at guys like Brandon Graham, Jason Kelsey, Fletcher Cox, Michael Kendricks, Vinnie Curry, Nick Foles, uh, Lane Johnson, Zach Ertz, Bo Allen, um, you know, Nelson Aguilar, Jordan Hicks, obviously Carson Wentz, Isaac Samala, Big V, Wendell Small with Jalen Mills, uh, and then Barnett, Sidney Jones, Russell Douglas, Mac Hollins. All those guys were on the Super Bowl team, and you drafted them from the start of this decade up until 2017. That is incredibly successful to have that many hits, to stick with your team, be contributors. All of those guys contributed one way or another to this team winning a Super Bowl. And I think for that to occur, that's a huge success for the way this team has been able to draft in the 2010s. Yeah, as as much stick as everyone gives, um, now Howie wasn't drafting all of them, but as as much stick as everyone gives this team for for drafting over the last few years, there certainly can be some criticism. But um, you know, when you have a guy drafted in 2010 still being a contributor now, a decade later, um, that's rare in the NFL. You know, it, it's rare to even have a career that long, let alone be playing at a high level still. Um, you know, nine, ten years later, so. Yeah, there's, there's lots of impressive drafts in there. That's the reason you win a Super Bowl is you build well. And it's not just one year that you get really lucky. There's multiple years in there where there's good value, and it's not always even your first pick. Um, you talk about guys drafting the fifth, sixth, seventh round that can contribute. So every pick matters. Um, and, and, again, you know, it's all about building towards something. It's Yes, obviously one guy can change the fortune of your team, um, but you know when you're consistently getting you know four or five guys each season that can contribute, that's that's big. And to think that you drafted, you know, the franchise quarterback in this era, and also you drafted the guy who helped you win the Super Bowl was the Super Bowl MVP, but he left a couple times and then came back, uh, says a lot about this team too, and just the culture they've been able to build throughout the last decade. This decade has also brought us a lot of, you know, incredible games. Obviously, I think the game of the decade will go down as the Super Bowl as a whole. Um, But each team had kind of signature games. And for the Eagles, it'll be the Super Bowl. I think for the Phillies, it'll be Roy Halladay's two, you know, the perfect game and the no-hitter in the playoffs. Uh, You know, you had so many for the Sixers, whether it was... Uh, those 10 wins <laughs> during the 10-win season. Um, you know, game three against the Raptors last year. Um, there were there were so many Sixers kind of signature wins, and even just this Christmas, you know, watching them do what they did to the Bucks when so many people doubted them. 
uh, going into that game. And then obviously the Flyers had, you know, their Stanley Cup run early in this decade too. But what game kind of stands out to you from this decade for any of the teams? I think it has to be the Eagles Super Bowl just because it's, it's the only championship of this decade. Um, going beyond that, yeah, I think to a lot of those Phillies games, obviously the no-hitter sticks in my mind a lot. Um, I will... It's not always a positive memory, but I'll always think of those series against the Giants. Um, just because, like, at the time in my life, like, I would just watch a lot of baseball. Mm-hmm. And those just stick out to me a lot just because they were great battles. Um, I, th- I think every year you felt like the winner of the, that series was going to win the World Series just because there's both stacked teams. Um, it feels strange to say, but, you know, the 2018 wasn't even the best kind of version of the Phillies in that kind of uh, those glory years. And it is it's always kind of nagging me that, um, you know, especially like 2009, not winning like that to me was like a much better, more complete team. And then the absolute dominant rotation you had from like, you know, 2000, really in 2008, you had a great one. But mm-hmm. from 2009 to 2012, that is like truly an all-time great rotation. Especially that, like, 2011 was like yeah. the most complete team. You don't see teams like that. Like you just don't. They won over a hundred games. They they literally just mashed and smashed and outpitched every team they faced. And that was like okay, trade deadline time comes around. What are they going to do to make this team better? And I I yearn for those days now with this Phillies team because you looked at that team and I was like, all right. How can how can they get any better? In 2011, you roll around and you make a trade and you go get Hunter Pence, who at that time was you know at his peak playing right field, and you just added him, boom, right into the lineup and made it that much better. And it was like this team is going to just dominate once the playoffs come around, and then it, it all comes to an end with uh, you know a one nothing loss to the St. Louis Cardinals, where Roy Halladay pitched his mind off. Uh, in just an absolute pitcher's duel against Chris Carpenter. And that game will stick out to me as kind of one of just the it-just-got-away moments because for those Phillies teams to have not won a World Series for Cliff Lee and Roy Halladay will always like eat me up inside. Yeah, those guys especially deserved... um deserve to have a ring and, and and even beyond that too i think just how great that it wasn't just a flash in the pan team there was you know six years of dominance and to only like it feels kind of weird to say but to only get one championship out of that stretch just it does feel like uh like there's some injustice being done and again I, like the 2018 will always have a special memory in all of our hearts but just it is a little funny that that's like arguably the worst iteration of that yeah. team and yet they won the world series and like dominating fashion mm-hmm. too like that team really wasn't touched at all in the playoffs like um now part of that was just because like you know there wasn't maybe as many strong teams uh, at, at that season but um yeah it is just a little funny that you'd probably say arguably the weakest team out of you know four or five years of of baseball is the one that gets it done and that just goes to show baseball can be a little cruel sometimes who do, you, it, who do you think the face of each franchise is from this decade? I think this is kind of the most open to interpretation for all these decade questions. Um, I think the Eagles, you'd have to go Nick Foles just because he delivered the championship. I think an image that will always stick in your mind will be him hoisting the Lombardi Trophy after, after the game was done. Uh, the Flyers... There's a 1-1-A. I think it's obviously Claude Drew, but you could also go the guy that's sitting right behind you because he broke the internet. It's true. And 
just came out of nowhere and really just took the world by storm and defined last season for the Flyers because they weren't great, but we were distracted by the fact that they finally had a mascot and he was just doing things on the internet that was like, okay, you know, the Flyers might not be great, but we can have a laugh and, you know, crack up at everything Gritty's doing. And it, it re-engages, I think, a part of the fan base that's fallen away from the Flyers this decade, where they've been this really kind of, you know, so much of this Flyers season has been marred by, like, the attendance talk and stuff like that. And I think it's it's silly to say, but Gritty, I think, has a big part in re-engaging people with the team because, you know, to be honest, as a young person, I only have so many hours in my day to watch games. And if, you know, I have, I have no reason sometimes to watch Flyers games, especially when they play the same night as a Sixers team. And especially in the fall where you have, like, the sports, like, all four of them going, and it's like, okay, yeah, like... Or they're out on the West Coast. And- you're like, why am I staying up till 10.30 to watch this team? I'm not. You know, like, and it is important, I think, you know... You can say it's shallow or whatever, but to, to get people on, on some kind of bandwagon. And if that has to be done through, you know, kind of this viral marketing of a very famous now mascot, that's big. I mean, Philly has been known for having a big mascot. Like, the the Fanatic has always been someone that I think has been a, a big, like, draw. And I, you mm-hmm. need that in baseball just because the season is so long. You have so many games. You need to get people in the door somehow. Um and yeah, we kind of neglect to think about the, the business and like marketing aspect and how much that has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, like 2010, you didn't have Twitter like you do now. Like that was still Facebook days. And um, now the difference between how sports teams have to market themselves uh, to, to get people in the door, just because again, people's time is limited, money's limited. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like that's it's it's all all drastically changed. So yeah, I think gritty. You could make the case, but it is. I think it has to be Claude, but Gritty deserves definitely a mention, even though he's only been here for um, two years. Yeah, now. you know, a very small portion of the decade. He certainly had a, a monster impact. I think Sixers. I think it's obvious you have to go Joel Embiid. Um, I think an honorary mention though could be Sam Hinkie because of just how he put his fingerprints all over this organization, changed it from being kind of that mediocre you know, middling eighth seed sneak into the playoffs type to going and getting these blue chip players, setting this team up for the success they're having now. And the fact that his name is still mentioned to this day, you know, whether it's through, you know, chance at the Wells Fargo center, uh, just on Twitter and, you know, just the way that he went out to, I think Sam Hankey is, is somebody from this decade that will forever, remain in in Sixers lore very long resignation letter um <laughs> I, I would say Hinky just because you know as much as we love Embiid Hinky was um I think just like a larger figurehead and I think someone that the fans latched on to as well and it was like such a an architect of like this weird process of just stripping a team down completely bare and rebuilding it um, into something that could actually compete and win championships. Um, you know, as great as Embiid is, I, I think Hinky is just, he'll always be kind of the face of this decade for me just because, um, you know, he, he, he started it all. Like, mm-hmm. he, he was the one who co- sort of started these chain of events to where we can be today with, you know, complaining about a team that's, you know, 23 and 11 uh, and, and how pissed off we are that they're they're not, you know, 
28 and 2 like you know like that's and then we saw it trickle down to other sports like yeah. Sam Hinkie started this trend and it, it, it started the rightfully so kind of uh re-examination of the Flyers and what they've mm-hmm. done you know for for a large part of this decade with sort of avoiding sort of stripping down the parts a little bit um I think it certainly encouraged the Phillies mm-hmm. to to strip down um there was even the same sort of conversations with the Eagles where like I think too on a broader sense it's sort of opened up, I think, a lot of people's eyes to um, having a clear plan and objective when it comes to sports. I think so often we just think of it as like you just play the games and win where there's so many more layers to a team's success than just the players played well. Like you you have to get so many things right. And I I think that's more than anything what Hinky has done for me is like on on a fan level is like there's just so much more to it. And, um, you know, then, then just the players on the court or on the field or whatever, like the, the, there has to be so many other things about an organization that have to be healthy and have to be right. And people, people putting people in the right positions, that's how you get to successful championship contending teams. Um, it's not just a, a, a fluke. And we saw it like happen with the Astros and as much as, you know, they've come, come under criticism now for how they've been able to win, like they tanked openly for years to go and get the Jose Altuve's, the George Springer's, you know, the Carlos Correa's. We're seeing it with the Miami Dolphins and the Cincinnati Bengals right now in the NFL, and we never saw that in the NFL before just because of how few games there are and just the, you know, the expectation to just be uber competitive in the NFL is always there. And now we're seeing it with these teams where the Dolphins made a basketball trade this year. They traded for Aqib Tlaib, who was injured and on injured reserve, just to get a draft pick. And they trade Minka Fitzpatrick, one of their yeah. best players, just to get more they draft capital. They traded Laramie Tunsil to the Houston Texans. Like, you, like, know, you get more darts on the board. Yeah, it's it's a whole philosophy that I think um, has probably been going on more like in the industry longer than we know. But I think as fans, everyone kind of got more... Uh, alert to the idea of like oh like when your team sucks is like a seventh eighth seed uh what's the point you know i think it opens up a broader discussion too about why you watch sports like okay like if you're happy with your team being a six seven seed you get to go to some playoff games get excited like cool like that's your life but i think most people want a team that can win a championship and i think it opens up a whole discussion again about like do you watch sports just to be entertained like do you need your team to be winning multiple rings because let's be honest most teams don't most teams will be lucky to win one championship in your life you know i've I've only seen two and frankly i'm not a huge eagles fan so really only one i've only seen one championship you did get liverpool yeah yeah i see i've seen them win things but you know that doesn't have the same Mm -hmm. connect because that's not my you know right the the city i grew up going to you know like where the phillies like i regularly go to phillies game and to see them win means a ton right Mm yeah so like yeah, it opens up a lot more discussion about just why you watch sports, and and I think even opens the door too to like a, you know a little bit more analytics entering sports where it's like okay like uh, again these aren't just guys playing like you can really put a lot of this into kind of melt it down and put it into science and and you know I think that's an interesting development as well. Hinky is like a a branch off the Daryl Morey tree, and you're going to see I think a lot more of that when you know, as the years go on and what the Rockets have done analytics wise and how they've sort of gamed basketball the past few years. And, um, you see, you've seen that a lot in baseball, obviously where, you know, teams just playing the analytics game and, and how to get the best out of their teams. But yeah, I think 
Hinky will always kind of remind me of this time period now, and maybe it's just a part of getting older too, where mm-hmm. you're just more aware of like, oh wow, like there's just so much more to a sports team winning than just guy is good, we win games, you know. I will even throw my hat in the ring for Brett Brown too, because of you know him coming in from the Greg Popovich coaching tree. Everybody was super excited, and then it was just like, okay, he's coming here to just you know develop guys because we're gonna tank. And he survived that, and he survived playoff losses now, and now he's coaching this team, you know, going into the 2020s, and I think Brett is going to be a guy who, you know, when it's all said and done, will be remembered in this city as, even with the record he has, there's got to be an asterisk next to it just because of the events that were occurring with this team. Brett's going to be remembered as one of the best coaches, in my opinion, in Philly sports history because of just how he was able to, you know, get through a 10-win season as a head coach and not lose his mind, you know, and now he's here coaching a team that has the all the ability in the world to win a championship, and he's done it. Like, you never see coaches that go from, you know, a 10-win season to winning 50-plus games in the NBA. It just doesn't happen because of the expectation to win. And for Brett to do what he's been able to do with this franchise for so long is beyond admirable. And uh, I think Brett's hat can be thrown in the ring, too, as a face that we'll remember of this decade for the Sixers and moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. He's been uh, he's he's one of the longest serving, you know, Philly coaches ever already, which is weird to say. Longest tenured head coach of the four major. You know, like in uh, Philly sports have kind of had that a lot this century, really. If if you go even further, you, know, you had like Andy Reid for pretty much our entire childhood. Um, you had like the Larry Boa years, like where it's like, oh my God, this guy's been around. For Charlie Manuel. Then you have Charlie Manuel, who wasn't super long serving, right? But certainly had like a pretty mm-hmm. decent tenure here. Like you've always kind of perennially had at least one guy that's been in the job for like six, seven years, and I think people s- start to really respect and associate with Philadelphia too, which is interesting. For the Phillies, who would your face of the decade be? There are so many that stand out from 2010 to just this year. It's tough. I I honestly don't even know who to pick. Because um, it's so hard to say, like, because you have this entire, it's, it's almost like the medieval times where you have these five <laughs> years where it's just like, I don't know how you could pick a single person out of those five years just because everyone kind of came and went. Um, and I don't know how you can really pick anyone of these last, like, two just because they haven't really had any big impact on the team. I want to say Bryce, but the same that you've had him for, like, a year. eight months yeah. of, like, the, the decade. So it's, like, hard to say. Um, yeah, you know, and it's hard to pick, like, someone like Roy Holiday just because it's, like, you know, you only had you only had years. so many years in this decade, and they're so long ago now. And, um Man, that is like I don't know. I don't know who you go with. I like part of me almost wants to say John Middleton just because I think he is a, a very at least in the last few years now, especially he's been a very visible owner and a very uh, talkative one. Um, and I think a lot of either the blame or the success and congratulations as we go to twenty twenties uh, will be laid at his feet. 
Um, you know, he's been very vocal about wanting to spend money and get this team back. I think he's the same yearning that a lot of fans do to, to see this team be successful. I don't have any doubt about that. Um, it's just whether or not he wants to pay the money. And now you're seeing this offseason about uh, they have $6 million left. And they don't want to go over the luxury tax BS. Like, if that continues, like, you're going to see, I think, um, him get in some more hot water. But I think he has been the long-standing face of this organization for for good or for bad and he's he's also pulled the trigger on on big moves though you know at the same time like gets rid of Ruben Amaro like decides like things need to change that this team isn't going where it needs to go and you know you have to to change stream and um yeah it's hard to say a player just because this decade has been so strange for the Phillies and it feels like the guys we have now haven't been here long enough or done enough to really be the face of a decade and you know you really only had like the first three years of the decade that this team was even uh, a good team. I have two players that I will always remember this decade because it was pretty much for the mid to last half of it. Uh, Aaron Nola will, will stick out to me because he was drafted in this decade. Uh, he's really the only pitching that has, you know, come up from the minor leagues and successfully developed and he's stuck with this team, and he's really entrenched himself into the city. You know, he's he's caught the allure of fans and has been successful. You know, he was a, a third-place finisher in the Cy Young vote. Um, you know, he's been everything you want from a starting pitcher that you've drafted, developed in the minors, called him up, and he's stuck. You know, it wasn't like you called him up, sent him back down, and kind of seesawed him like they've done with a lot of their pitchers. As soon as Aaron Nola got called up, he was here to stay. And I think that says a lot about him and how he's been able to just, you know, navigate his way through the major leagues and make a name for himself. So I think Aaron Nola is one. And, you know, I'll always have the personal connection with Aaron Nola because I did go to his major league debut. And I'll never forget because it was in 2015. It was kind of that weird era of Phillies baseball where we just stunk. And I'm standing out in Ashburn Alley, and Aaron Nola is on the mound for the very first time, and everybody in the stadium is just, like, bowing down and doing chants of, he's our savior, because there was literally nobody to attach yourself to, and this was the guy that was talked about, kind of how Spencer Howard is talked about now, as kind of the next big pitching prospect that's going to come into this rotation and help a ton, and... It was kind of like ushering in that next era of Phillies baseball because it was the end of Chase Utley's career, the end of Jimmy Rollins, Ryan Howard. And it was like, okay, this could potentially be like our next Cole Hamels. And he got to pitch with Cole Hamels for, you know, half a season as well and learn from Cole. And uh, I think Aaron Nola will stick out to me. And unfortunately, he's gone now. But uh, a guy that I will remember from this decade is Michael Franco. He was billed as kind of the next... Yeah third baseman of the future for this team what had a fantastic rookie year and you know he gets hit on the hand in Arizona breaks his hand and from that moment on it was just kind of never we never saw the same Michael Franco again it was up and down kind of a seesaw career and uh as much as people you know griped about Michael Franco whether it was you know he struck out too much or uh didn't play great defense he was a guy that kind of defined this era of Phillies baseball from post-World Series and just, you know, getting the playoffs every year to the rebuild. He was there through thick and thin, and I think 
a lot of people will remember Michael Franco for, you know, this decade of Phillies baseball because he was another guy that they kind of just attached themselves to and he was billed as, you know, part of this next generation of Phillies baseball. Yeah, it's um I I like both of those just cuz they're they're a good mix of where this team was for about half the decade and where they've been since in sort of this rebirth of a, of a team. Um, yeah, I think Nola's a, a good good shout too, just because uh, we do love a pitcher in Philly, um, and we don't we don't typically produce our own. You know, you look at a lot of the guys we've mentioned have pretty much always been free agent signings or trades. Um, you know, you think of the way Cole Hamels is like revered in this city. Um, I think he's probably the most revered pitcher uh, out of all of the great ones that we've had over the last 15 years, which is a little weird to say. And Cole Hamels is a great pitcher, of course, but he's, I, I think, you know, the third or fourth best out of, you know, a, a lot of those lineups. Um, but he is so fondly remembered. I think that's part of it because he's, he's a homegrown talent. I think Nola could have the same type of, like, longstanding appeal. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I like that. And I think the final one I have is just your moment of the decade for any of the teams. Obviously, we've had ups and downs. Uh, we had the the chase for Bryce Harper. We had the, the double doink with the Eagles. We had the quadruple magnetic rims in Toronto that was a down. Uh, obviously, the, the Phillies playoff runs. Um, you know, you had Jonathan Papelbond kind of, you know, grabbing himself towards the fans. Um, you know, the Flyers coming back against the Bruins. You had a whole bunch of things go down this decade. What's the moment of the 2010s in Philadelphia sports that you'll remember the most? Um, I have two because I can't I can't separate. So not the Super Bowl actually, but the NFC Championship game. I think was uh, like I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it again. I'm not even like an Eagles. Like that was like to me <laughs> like such a huge statement of wow this team can actually like win a super bowl this year and i like we hadn't had a, a, a championship run even since the the flyers um so i think this city was really starved like for like just someone having like a real tangible success like it would have been and, and to to have that game at home and like just i'll remember all of the again it's so very like 2018 like i'll remember like sitting on twitter and seeing all the videos of people like running around but those things are like they they stick with you of like the the car on fire rolling on the street <laughs> and the big guy with the bird's bird mask, mask on like turning so like those are things you will literally remember for the rest of your life the and i think in the lady's face yeah like go, go bird like that's like those are classic moments that i think will will last a long time um and number two is the Drew Holiday trade, just because I think I remember that night. I remember like being very confused as to why we were trading Drew Holiday. I was so angry. Everyone was, and everyone was very. Um, no one knew what was happening, and I, I think that always stick out to me too as like a big turning moment for the Sixers of like wow, like uh, just a completely different direction. Drew Holiday was someone that I think we all really loved. He was like a, a burgeoning All Star on this team, um, so. Yeah, on draft night, finding out he's traded and like just having no clue of like what's next and all the Bynum stuff. I think those those moments. I know it's not just one, but will always kind of stick with me as like a what the hell is happening? And I am very curious to see where the hell we're we're going with all this. Um, those those are the two moments that stick out to me the most. Yeah, I think I'll go team by team just because there are a lot. Uh, Flyers, I'll start. Just the reveal of gritty and just how he took the internet by storm uh you know 
following his his Twitter followers going up and us just putting a tweet out because we were fairly new when it happened. And of all people, CM Punk retweets us and just makes our gritty tweet go viral about how he was the most followed mascot on Twitter of all things. Um, and just how people hated him at first. And it was so Philadelphia. You know, a guy comes in, you don't really know anything about him. Why should I like him? And then he just endears himself and, you know, becomes part of what this, you know, Flyers culture and just the culture of the city is. Uh, I'll always remember Gritty's reveal. That Eagles run from the time Carson went down in Los Angeles and watching and just remembering that photo of him going into the tunnel, Eagles with a lead. You have no idea what's happening. The Eagles are on this this run, and it's like they're going to do it. And then Carson's out, and it's it felt like the world just came crashing down because it was like, how are we going to survive this? Carson was on an MVP run. You have Nick Foles coming in who was completely cold, and then Nick Foles just, you know, Carson must have sent him all of his, you know, MVP magic, and Nick Foles goes on a run and wins two of the most, you know, dominant performance games I'll ever remember in that NFC Championship game, obviously. I'll never forget, you know, Patrick Robinson running back that pick six and just absolutely embarrassing the Minnesota Vikings in Philadelphia, the, you know, the dog masks coming out uh, for the Atlanta game and uh, just being home underdogs as the one seed against the Falcons. And of all people, Jalen Mills defending Julio Jones to knock it away to get to that Vikings game. And then you go to the Super Bowl and it's against Tom Brady and this dynasty era of New England Patriots who... You know, you're looking for the revenge factor from 2004, and you just go in an absolute shootout point for point with the New England Patriots, and you run the damn Philly special, which will be another thing that is remembered about this decade, um, on fourth and goal. You know, it's fourth down, and you run a trick play like that. It works, and you go and win the Super Bowl against arguably the best coach of all time in NFL history and one of the best quarterbacks, if not the best quarterback in NFL history. And you win this city's first Super Bowl with a backup quarterback. And that's something that I don't know if you can ever replicate just the turn of events of that 2017 Eagles team. And it's something that I don't think anybody will ever forget, obviously. Um, The Sixers moment, yes. The Drew Holiday trade, for sure will stick out because I'll remember I was at work and I just get a notification that the Sixers traded Drew Holiday <coughs> to the Pelicans and I was like, what the hell are we doing? I wanted to throw my phone on the ground because I was, I was, and still am, such a huge fan of Drew Holiday. Um, he was like the first Sixers player that I really like attached myself to post Allen Iverson era and I was like, man, like, I, I really, really like this guy. And then, boom, he's traded. I was like, what the hell are we doing? Who the hell is Nerlens Noel? And why is he so much better than Drew Holiday? And then the turn of events happen. And then uh, I think another moment I'll remember for the Sixers is just the first time Joel Embiid stepped on a basketball court. Because there was always talk, like, he's never going to play. He's been injured for two years. And we don't know if he'll ever play basketball. And then he stepped on a court for the first time, and it was like, you know, that kind of epiphany moment. Like, 
we have a guy. And him playing in his first NBA game is something I'll always remember because of just the, the negativity that swirled around that pick and how he was injured, and that's why he fell to the number three pick. And uh, look at him now. He is one of, if not, you know, arguably, as Skip Bayless said, when he decides to be the best player in the NBA. Uh, so Joel's first game is something that I'll always remember, too. And then with the Phillies, obviously those two no-hitters in the perfect game um, from Roy Halladay, uh, just the, the tail end of that run, and then just the, the rebuild going down. I'll always remember Aaron Nola's debut. And then uh, just chasing down Bryce Harper and stealing him away from the Washington Nationals will always be something that sticks with me because I hated Bryce Harper. He was one of those players that I just hated because he didn't play for my team. And now that he's here, he is one of the athletes that I just absolutely love. And him being here for the rest of his career is something that is super special. And for the way that it went down, and we were just it was we were literally that Charlie Day gif from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with everything on the bulletin board explaining everything. Like, this is how it's gonna go down. We're gonna get him. Like, we were going crazy talking about Bryce Harper. Um and as soon as it happened, it was like this big sigh of relief just went across, you know, the tri-state area. And uh, it's something that will always, I think, stick out whenever this Phillies team wins a championship, because I fully expect them to. Uh, I think that will be one of the stories that we remember is it got started by waiting until, you know, spring training to sign the the cornerstone piece of this next era of Phillies baseball being Bryce Harper. Yeah, his his interview at spring training in front of the uh in front of the the diamond and yeah, it's definitely going to be an iconic moment you feel going forward. So uh those are our moments of the decade and uh we can't thank you guys enough for rocking with us all of 2019. Obviously, we'll have uh some special things coming up because our 2-year anniversary is February 7th. Uh so we'll have our, uh, the Underground Sports Philadelphia Hall of Fame go out again, just like we did last year, uh, starting next month, where you guys get to vote on who you think we should induct into our Hall of Fame. There's going to be a lot. Oh, another moment of this decade, too. It's very relatively you know recent, but the damn Mike Scott hive. Definitely <laughs> up there. What just transpired from that and Mike Scott just becoming a cult hero in this city is something that uh, is just so on brand for philadelphia but uh the the hall of fame voting will go out soon and uh you know just thank you guys for a wild 2019 we did a lot this year and uh 2020 is going to be extremely special so make sure you get on board with us if you haven't already and make sure you follow us on twitter at underground phi you can follow matt at matt castarina you can follow me at kbizzl311 and make sure you leave those five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Let us know your moments of the decade and uh, anything that sticks out to you from any of the four Philadelphia sports. Another subtle moment, too. Not one of the major four sports, but the Union also making the playoffs uh, at the tail end of the decade. Really cool there, too. Um, and if you don't have an iPhone, you can check us out on Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, the TuneIn app, iHeartRadio, or Radio.com. As always, show brought to you by our friends at Maine Auto LLC, Ducharms Pro Foot, Security 21, Wainwright Bernhardt Funeral Home, Paul J. Gillespie Incorporated, Bob Novick Automall, Mark Ronchetti, CPA LLC, and the Dental Wellness Center 
of Vineland. This has been Underground Sports Philadelphia, episode number 197. We'll catch you guys in 2020. So for Matt, I'm Kyle. For the final time of this decade, end of 2019, we are signing off. Peace.